This is a HeadGum Podcast. I don't know the truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Yeah, but that's all right. That's okay. I don't know anything. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together. We're going to have so much fun. This week, we're talking about language. You know, people are constantly arguing about what the right and wrong ways to use language are, as though the rules of language were encoded by some grammar god from on high. But they're not. Language isn't a set of objective rules like math. No, language is created, changed, and used by people. And that means it will always resist our attempts to control it. There was actually a funny example of this the other year in the UK. A London primary school made a bold attempt to ban slang. And by bold, I mean pointless and stupid. I mean, how are you going to stop teens from beginning sentences with because, like, or basically? This school even tried to ban phrases like, he cut his eyes at me, which, I mean, come on, that's not just slang, that's poetry. That sounds like Shakespeare, man. And it's a phrase, along with many others that were banned, that originated among marginalized people. Controlling language like this seems to be more about limiting the influence of certain people rather than the words themselves. And at the end of the day, it won't work. Because again, language is created by people, and people are irrepressible. If you set up a linguistic rule, you had better believe some enterprising kid is going to come along and break it. And when they do, they are going to use that new word, phrase, or sentence structure to mean something new because that is what language fucking does, bro. Now, none of that stops language from being a constant culture war target. From the battles over Ebonics in the 1990s to conflicts today over the use of supposed woke language. But those battles ignore something fundamental. The way people use language reveals something about them, about who they are and where they come from and what is happening in their world. So instead of telling people not to use language a certain way, what if we took the opportunity to learn from how they actually do use it? Well, fortunately for us, there is an entire field of study that looks at the relationship between culture and language called sociolinguistics. And on the show today, we in fact have a sociolinguist who has written a fascinating new book on this very topic. Her name is Valerie Friedland, and she's a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of a new book called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And you are going to love this interview with her. But before we get to it, I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover. For just five bucks a month, you get every episode of this show ad-free. You can join our community Discord. We even do a live book club over Zoom. It is so much fun. Hope to see you there. And if you love stand-up comedy, please remember I am on tour this year. If you live in Illinois, Maryland, Missouri, or Rhode Island, come see me. I got a brand new hour of stand-up. I'd love to see you. I do a meet and greet after every show adamconover.net slash tour dates to get those tickets. And without further ado, let's get to my interview with Valerie Friedland. Valerie, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here to talk with you. 
So you're a sociolinguist. Tell me very briefly, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I am impressed with how well you pronounce that. That trips a lot of people up, which is part of the reason <laughs> I went for that as my title. <laughs> I love language. That's how I know. That's how I know how to pronounce everything. I love it. Because I know the English language front to back. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to test that as we go today. But okay. I'm I would a, love to. I'm a linguist, a theoretical linguist, which means that I study the underlying structure of language, how language is formed in the brain, how your articulatory structure helps get language language out. But my particular interest is how social triggers and these underlying linguistic tendencies interact and become language changes and evolve over time. So that's why I'm a sociolinguist. And so give me an example of that. Like, I'm sure your book is full of them, but but uh, give me an example of how how that social world will affect how language evolves. Oh, absolutely. So I think a really seminal example is just looking at how English has come to be the modern English we speak today versus being German uh, <laughs> or something more like Icelandic, which hasn't changed much since its proto-Germanic days because we all started as a different language. But it's social forces that came into the history of English's development that changed it from a Germanic language, almost 100% Germanic words stock to a language that has only about 30% Germanic word stock because we had wars, we had invasions, we had Vikings, we had all sorts of fun stuff, but we also had class and class plays a huge role mm -hmm. in shaping language. And during the Middle English period, class was seminal in forming the English that we speak today. So the lower class spoke English and the upper class spoke French. And whenever you have unregulated language change going on without a lot of upward pressure on keeping it standard or modifying it, natural evolutionary processes in language, natural cognitive processes in language take place, and they meet with that social trigger of social class and social standing. And that's really what formed the modern English of today. So that's a really good example of how language triggers that are always there and social triggers that come into play at certain times and places interact and create something new and novel. Uh, you know, an example of this interaction with the class that I heard, and I Hesitate to repeat it because I worry it's like a just so story that I heard, but maybe you can correct me and tell me if it's real or not, is that the reason we have different words in English for or in modern American English, at least for the animal versus the meat that comes from the animal is because of that class distinction that other languages, they use the same word or, or many others they do. But in English, cow versus beef, beef is French because it was the uh, and cow is the the English because it was the peasants who were dealing with the animal and the the lords and ladies who actually ate the meat. Um, and so we ended up with this French descended word. That That's a story I heard many decades ago. Is that true? It, it seems is. to match the front line that you're it, talking about. It is true. That's a great story. Um, actually, you can even read about it in Ivanhoe when they talk about the peasants and what they called the food and the nobility and what they called the food. It was very different because English had the words for the animal, so cow and swine, for example, are the English words. But French was the language of nobility and it was the language of the upper class at the time. And so the words that were used when you actually served as a servant, when you served that animal, you used the French word. So cow became le boeuf. And that is exactly mm. why we have that um, two-faced way to call animals and meat in English today. Well, now you mentioned the idea that, you know, in, in the absence of a pressure to standardize the language, these evolutionary things will happen. But that's also a, a big feature of languages, especially, uh, you know, English. I grew up being told there's a right way to speak and a wrong way to speak. 
you know, I used to say I'm doing good. And my friends would say, Adam, Superman does good. You're doing well. <laughs> and I was like, fuck off. You're being an asshole. Right. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, you know, we're used to these sort of battles in, in English. And so in your view, just very broadly, what role does that uh, those standardization forces play? I mean, is that a beneficial effect on languages? Is it something that we should leave behind? Like, I, it seems like a battle that never ends. Well, I think it's actually a fairly new battle, which most people don't realize. What mm. you're talking about is prescriptivism. And we seem to think prescriptivism has been around forever because we learned it. And we remember our parents saying, no, it's not him and you that went to the party. It's he and you that went to the party or he and I uh, that yeah. went to the party. But reality uh, is that language has evolved so much since the old English period, precisely because there weren't a lot of codification and standardizations that existed in the Middle English period to tell us how to speak. And so it was natural evolutionary processes, natural tricultory forces that led language to where it is today. And it really wasn't until about the 18th century that we had people that were like, wow, you know, I like the way I say this better than the way you say it. So let me write it down. And now everybody's going to say it this way. So these prescriptivist tendencies, these grammar books, these dictionaries really didn't start being written until about 1700. And that's where we get this really strong complaint tradition starting about that era where <laughs> you don't do it right, but I do it right. And you should do it like me. I think the big question yeah. is not whether one opinion is right and one is wrong, but can they coexist? And we understand where these two different beliefs about language stem from and what their purpose might be. So a prescriptivist might say, you should say it this way, because first of all, that's how people in power say it. And if you want to achieve that kind of economic or political power, you should say it this way, because that will get you in the door. They might also say that this is tradition and tradition is valuable. So there is some benefit to that kind of speech. Uh, a descriptivist or someone who just lets nat language naturally evolve might say, well, almost everything you say that you think is correct today was wrong at some point in time and is an evolution mm -hmm. from some previous point. And if we didn't allow language to proceed naturally, then we would still have case markers in English. We would still have grammatical gender in English. We would still have plural marking on every word in English. We would have strong and weak verb classes, none of which do we have today. And our language is no less for, for, for it. In fact, we are as expressive and creative and inventive as ever, so that there's nothing wrong with natural evolutionary processes, and they're more authentic to speakers' personalities. My answer would be, I think both are right. There are times and places where prescriptivism might fit. So for example, in writing, it's probably important to have codification and standardization. And even in more mm. formal speaking contexts where I'm giving a talk or I'm a CEO of a company and I am in a leadership position and I want to make sure everybody understands me and that I'm a model in some way, that might be an appropriate place for, for prescriptivist notions. But if it's a teenager or somebody talking on the street or my friend or my neighbor, then if they start using that kind of language, I actually think they're an asshole. <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't really serve yeah, me you're, well. Yeah, if you're lecturing someone in person, you're lecturing someone in person on the proper use of the semicolon and they're like, dude, I was just fucking talking to you. Like I don't, I wasn't using semicolons. Like, well, I, you actually raised a really good point that I didn't even think of because I often think of uh, prescriptivism as being simply wrong. That you know, people claim that there's a right way to use language and a wrong way to use language. And I think that's incorrect. I think that language is, as you say, it's socially determined. And when someone says there's a right and way, wrong way, 
they're really making a statement about the, about society, about, you know, people, about the, I'm the right kind of person and you are the wrong kind of person and you should be more like me. I'm standard. I'm normative. I'm dominant. I'm the I'm the rule and you're the exception. Uh, however, you do make a point that writing is very different from speech, that uh, there are rules that I do sort of believe are rules in sp- in writing about I don't know. I think you need to close the parentheses, <laughs> you know, very, very basic stuff, punctuation marks and things like that. And, and that made me just you saying that made me realize, oh, wow. Yeah. Writing just English writing for someone else to read is far more rule bound than speeches and is actually a completely different way of using language. They don't, they barely, if you were to write down what I'm saying to you right now, it would be incoherent because I'm I'm interrupting myself. I'm like inserting clauses in the middle of sentences and then trailing off. They're completely different ways of using language. And yet I understand every word that you said, because in real speak context where we're face to face or, you know, television screen to television screen, we (laughs) we have context and we have background knowledge. We also can read other signs from our bodies, eye gaze, uh, various things like that, that allow us to fill in those holes. But in writing, you're absolutely right. We don't have that contextual information and it wouldn't make sense. So we need more conventions in writing than we need in speech. But I, I want to clarify that speech has a lot of rules. So I think a lot of times people mm. misconstrue what I'm saying to mean, okay, we don't have to have rules when we talk. It's not important because I absolutely agree with you that when we are judging someone on their speech, because it's different from a prescriptive norm, we're just being prescriptivist assholes who think we're right and they're not. And that's not a appropriate way to frame someone else's speech. You can say, I don't like your speech. It's not my preference. But saying something is disliked is very different than saying something is bad, which makes a moral judgment. And when I'm telling you that you're not good enough because of the way your speech, your speech is, I'm telling you that I'm morally judging you on the basis of something that's just different than my own views and beliefs. But that doesn't mean that speech is not governed by rules. If we didn't have rules governing speech, we wouldn't be able to understand each other. We have lots of rules that govern speech. They're just not the time type that appear in a grammar book or a dictionary. They're the type that we know in here, that we learn as babies, mm. that we understand whenever we have a conversation, no matter who we are and whether we're literate or not. So for example, if I tell you, Ted thinks that John knows himself well, well, who does the mm. himself there refer to? You know it has to be John. It can't be Ted. Because of the rules that I understand as a speaker of human language and a two-year-old, if you give them like two different puppets to um, play with and to pick out, you say, Ted knows that John knows himself. And you name one puppet Ted and the other puppet John, they will always pick the right puppet to refer to himself because that's an underlying rule of language that allows them to find the right antecedent. But these are unspoken rules that we don't need someone to put in a dictionary. And if, if we did, we'd have to wait till a kid could read, which would be way too late for language. So language is fundamentally a different skill than writing, and we shouldn't expect the same rules to apply. Wow, that that is so cool. And my mind is blown whenever I encounter a rule like that. One that I learned a couple of years ago, and you'll tell me the proper version of it. Uh, this will be my dumb, dumb recitation of it. But it's that there's a particular order of modifiers or adjectives in English that if I were to say, you know, the big red scaly British dragon, right? 
those words all come in a particular order. If I were to say the scaly red British big dragon, that immediately sounds wrong to me. And it sounds wrong to you too. And there's like an order of, there's like a quantity, size, where it comes from, what its demeanor is. And those all come in a particular order that I intuitively know, despite the fact I was never taught this in school. No one ever sat me down and said, hey, if you're gonna apply eight modifiers in a row to a particular noun, here's the order they have to come in. And yet I know it. So where do rules like that or the himself one that you described, where do they come from? Are they socially determined? Are they specific to languages or what? Well, you just walked into a big controversy in linguistics. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, actually, not. Not. Oh, no. That's exactly what I love to wander into is an academic controversy. Break it down for us. What? What is the controversy? Well, if you're a Chomskyan, meaning someone that follows the syntactic theories of Noam Chomsky, which is has been a very influential field of thought in modern American linguistics, you would say, well, a baby is born with that. It's part of our innate grammar that we're born with. We are born mm. talking so that we're not not physically talking, but we're born talking in our brain that we have a specific area of the brain that's devoted to linguistic processing and syntactic structures. And all it needs is sort of activation or triggering by input from the environment. And once it hits those triggers, certain, you know, little boxes are checked and it develops language, this it being the baby. Um, others are functionalists. And this has become a little more prevalent in American thinking, I think, in modern eras versus maybe 20 years ago when Chomsky and philosophy was really the, the only way you would think. And this says that, okay, we are you know, born with some capacity for language. There do seem to be some fundamental structures that help guide the way that babies' brains process for language, but it's not language exclusive. It's learning exclusive that brains are made to learn in certain ways and those ways that it learns interacting with the way the world is, certain facts about the world create a knowledge form that that is universal. And so I think a good mm. example of this would be um, when we when we have case in the language. So, for example, um, I in English is object case is um, sorry, subject case and him is an object case pronoun, right? So you see that there's different right. changes in, in the saying, or I and me, or he and, and him. What we find is in um, languages that are subject, verb, object, like English, where the subject goes first, and then you have a verb, and then you have an object, like I saw him. Yeah, Those languages often don't have case or can lose case without too much difficulty because the subject and the object are widely separated and there's a marker in the middle saying, okay, I'm the verb that acts back on the subject and forward on the, the object. So it has a clear separation right. between that subject and the object. So it's easy for your brain to process who did what to whom without case marking. Right. That's just a functional fact mm. of the way that that sentence is structured. But what we find in languages that have the subject and the object close together, like a subject object verb language, I think Japanese is a good example of this. German is like this. I learned it in college. German is like you're like uh, I him blah, 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 blah on Tuesday met. And then you, so you have to wait all the way into the end of the sentence a lot of the time to find out what the verb is. And to see who is and doing what it, to whom. Yes, right, exactly. exactly. So exactly like German, what you find is if you have the two subjects and the objects right beside each other, it would be very hard if you didn't mark with case to understand which was the subject and which was the object because they both precede the verb. And so we just yeah. find as a natural functional tendency, languages that have that kind of structure have case. 
languages that don't have that kind of structure don't have to have K. So these are functional developments that arise for our brain's ability to process information. So uh, again, there are two very different arguments about how language occurs in the brain and how we learn these rules, but fundamentally it's from the way the brain is structured and how we're structured yeah. as humans to process the world. That's really fascinating because it, whether you're a, a Chomskyite or or a functionalist about it, and, and we could, I don't think we need to dive deeper into the difference. Uh, regardless of which one you are, this is part of the structure of how humans work rather than something you need to learn in a style manual or, you know, that you need to be taught in school. Um, it's actually absent from the rules that, you know, you would learn in a setting like that because it's sort of built into us, uh, which is really, it's really fascinating that like, you know, the, the language pedants don't even bother to tell you about it. Um, but there's all these other rules that they feel that they often need to enforce. Never split an infinitive, you know, that kind of thing uh, is is very fascinating to me that that we end up that that some folks feel a need to have that kind of rule. I, I, let's move on from the talk about prescriptivism, though. Um, uh, one thing I'd love to ask you about, I know you write about uh, uh <laughs> you write about the, uh, like interject. I literally put one into that sentence, you know, interjections like, uh, or, you know, and I would love to talk to you about this because as someone who talks for a living, I actually happen to use a lot of them because I think a little bit faster than I talk. Sometimes I have a lot of ideas. I tend to use those, you know, words. There have been times that people in the industry have told me you should really watch yourself for that and make sure you don't use those that often because they make you sound stupid or whatever. And then I go through a little period where I try to stop myself from saying, you know, so much. Uh, but it's so much a, a feature of my speech that I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to completely eradicate it. So what is your view as a linguist of, of where those interjections come from and what purpose they have? Well, first, I want to apologize because after we talk about them, you're going to hear them every time you say them for the rest of our conversation. So <laughs> this, we should have saved this for the end because people are going to hear me do it for the entire rest of the of the podcast. And it's going to drive them fucking insane. Right, exactly. Like, oh, well, well, here we are. Let's it, do it. You can't unhear it once you hear it once and people talk about it. So I apologize in advance to everybody listening. But the nice thing is we shouldn't be so upset about it because those things are doing great work for us. And as you said, you mm. talk for a living. It's different than writing. If I stuck a lot of, you know, uh, um, and all those things in my writing, then it might be distracting and it might detract from the purpose. But when we're in conversation, our job is not only the strict, literal, semantic information that I'm trying to transmit. It's also the relationship we have, the ideas we have about it, and also my personal beliefs about what I'm saying, how I came to that knowledge, whether I'm sure about that knowledge or less sure than that knowledge, something called epistemics in linguistics. So all these different things are competing for our ability to phrase them somehow. And so things like, you know, actually, well, so all of those help direct the listener to have certain expectations about the, what the speaker is intending. And this is actually very helpful as a listener to have someone point out to you how you're supposed to take something, because we all have been in those situations where we say something and it's not quite taken like we intended it. A lot of times, if you don't signpost or provide these conversational cohesion markers, then you increase the tendency of other people to misunderstand where you're headed, your own relationship to what you're saying, or how certain 
you were about what you're saying. So when I say something such as like, when I use like as a discourse marker, what like communicates in many cases is a subjective sensibility. This idea that what I'm telling you is not precise, but it's sort of the sense that I want you to get from what I'm saying, or I want to use it for emphasis. So for example, if I said, I was waiting like 20 hours for you, dude, what (laughs) what I probably wasn't doing is waiting 20 hours. And I don't intend for you to take it that way. What I'm emphasizing by putting that like in there is that, hey, asshole, you made me wait for a really long time and I'm pissed off about it. Right. So it's communicating that versus saying, I was waiting for 20 hours, which certainly doesn't communicate the same force, the same emphatic force. So all of those little markers are extremely meaningful in in our everyday speech. And in fact, if we look at studies that remove those, those discourse markers like, you know, and like and well and so from the speech of, of subjects and we have other listeners listen to them and rate them on how sociable they were, how well likable, how likable they were, those kinds of things. We find that when we remove those discourse markers, people hear that speech as less friendly and more robotic. So we want them uh, in there. So you're just friendlier really- and not a robot. So isn't that good? <laughs> that is good, except that I often find that other people in my position, broadcasters, if you watch someone on CNN, you watch a CNN guest, they've likely uh, trained themselves to remove all the us from their speech. And it's sort of seen as a mark of of professionalism. And uh, but do you think that that maybe that's counterproductive because it's making those folks less friendly? It makes them seem stiffer or more broadcasty or I suppose it depends on the on the medium. But well, that's actually a really good question, because I think what you're drawing attention to is two different things than what we were talking about previously. So I was mentioning discourse markers like like, you know, some and well. But what you're talking about is um and uh, which are actually filled pauses. So those are fundamentally uh. and functionally different than uh, filler uh. words, which is what you were talking about previously. And they do very different work. So where things like, you know, well, so they, they actually are for conversational cohesion and they signpost and provide some epistemic value often. So how someone is to take something. Um and uh are actually markers of speech planning and they don't, don't themselves have any kind of literal meaning that they contribute to what I'm saying. Whereas so does and well does, they actually contribute some sort of meaning. Um, um and uh, in fact, are usually more, uh, likely to occur when someone has not rehearsed what they're going to say, when we're in spontaneous discourse, when we're saying th- something that's more abstract, more difficult, less familiar, um, those kinds of situations will increase the numbers of us and ums that we use. So when we're in a context like a CNN expert and we expect someone to know what they're talking about, um and uh would signal to us that they are not practiced and they are not familiar with what they're saying and therefore would be taken as a disfavorable sign of their ability to communicate. Uh. In conversation, though, I want to know people are working hard to come up with interesting things to say. So if we're in a regular back and forth conversation at a party or at a bar and you say um or uh a couple of times, what that tells me is that you're actually spending some cognitive effort on coming up with, with what to say. So in those cases, I don't think there's anything wrong with using them. In a case where I'm giving a public talk, for example, or I'm on television as a host, I would yep. expect it to be more practice and therefore it would probably be less valuable to use those in those contexts. Oh my God, this is that's such an incredible breakdown of when it's useful and when it's not, and when we actually might want to remove those words and when we might not want to. 
Uh, And I think a lot of my conversation here, part of what I'm doing in conversations like this with you, I am thinking on my feet because I'm sort of the, I'm the interlocutor here. I'm not the expert. I'm asking you questions. I'm trying to be surprised by what you're saying, you know? And so it makes sense for me to be puzzling through uh, my thoughts as I'm talking to you, because that's the sort of conversation I'm trying to have. So in this context, this is a good context for me to go, uh, uh, oh, that's really interesting, Valerie. Uh, mm, uh. But if I'm in the opposite context, maybe I'm being interviewed about something I know a lot about, then perhaps it might be better for me to be a little bit more locked and loaded if I'm trying to communicate more expertise. also, when, you, when you're talking about conversational markers like like, one that I've heard come up more recently is is putting right at the end of a sentence. I find myself doing that in interviews. Actually, what, sometimes when I am the expert in a context, right now I'm I'm being interviewed a lot about uh, uh, union matters because I'm uh, uh, in the leadership of my union and we're, we're in the news a lot lately because we're on strike. And so something I'll do a lot is I'll explain blah, 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 right? Blah, 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 right? And I'll just sort of toss that little right at the end and it feels like a similar sort of uh, social lubrication where I'm trying to I'm trying to draw the audience along and communicate that I'm making an argument that I hope is going down easily. It, it's it seems like a cousin to like uh, rather than a cousin to uh, perhaps. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I actually have an anecdote in the book where I was talking to a podcaster and they were so relieved to hear me talk about all these different features of having a purpose and being useful because they said that they're often called out for their over frequent use of right in just the same context yeah. you talk about it. So it must be a podcaster, right? Another it person is. who is regularly taken to task for their use of right in that same way is actually Mark Zuckerberg. He uses right mm. a lot in that context. So see, you're in very good company. That right is well. I don't want to be in co- company <laughs> with Mark Zuckerberg personally. That's what well, we can get. In, that's a different episode. But you know, I've, I have my beefs with Mark. But okay, I, I I understand that we might be using it in the same way. Please go on. Well, so what you're doing there is actually inviting the audience to make inferences. So when you use right in that context, you're pausing to let them catch up and say, "Okay, I'm checking that you're making the right inference and you're keeping up with me." So it's a listenership device where you're using it to help. Give them a moment to get up to speed and then making uh, sure that they're getting the inference you're intending. Um, so a lot of times yeah. people have disliked that because it, it causes work on the side of the listener. If you're inviting someone to make inferences, you're asking them to do work. And some listeners may feel like that's asking a lot of them <laughs> to do actual work. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's funny that that bothers us, but I've heard that one in particular, that inferring right to be something that people remark on quite often as they've noticed more and more in people's speech. But I think what it really is, it's just the sign that we're in conversation and we recognize we have a listener in conversation. It's not yeah. just us talking, right? You're actually, and I just used it. We're actually making sure that someone is there with us and moving along with us. Now, I think where people sometimes get upset is when they're listening to people on the radio or on a podcast and they're using that right. And maybe the people are not agreeing or not making that same inference. And that's where they're getting a little tweaked about it. Yeah. They're like, oh, no, not right. I disagree with you. Like, I think taxes should be higher or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But no, you're, you're completely correct that I do it because... Um, I am trying to lay out an argument for the person listening and I want them to come along. I was like, Hey, let, are you still on the, are you still on the wagon? Like, are we still traveling together here? Um, we're, we're, we're in this together. I'm not just like, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to, you know, lay out a trail of breadcrumbs for you and, and and hope that you follow it and we're in it together. And I, I'm trying to remind them of that. At least that's what I, 
what I think I'm doing. It is wonderful to talk to you. You are like a therapist for podcasters. And I, I honestly think this is a, a fee that you should offer uh, <laughs> where you just talk to people about the linguistic tics that everyone in the YouTube comments is getting on their ass about. Because uh, it does, it is something that that happens to us as public speakers. Is that as soon as someone comments on something, you're like, oh, do I need to, do I need to change it? And oh, god, everything I'm doing is wrong. You know, um, it's it's very. Uh, it, you can really get in your own head. And I guess I wonder what is the value of trying to restrict your own speech in that way, trying to control your own speech and be rigid with it, versus doing what comes naturally. Like a lot of times on a podcast, I just want to be my natural self, a little bit more up and talkative than my natural self, but I'm not trying to, I worry that if I were to police myself for the rights and the ums and the uhs too much, that I would become stiff and it wouldn't be as good of a conversation. What do you think? Well, I think then you'd get angry emails saying that you were too stiff and, and, you know, sounded like a uptight (laughs) stick in the mud. So you're never going to make people happy. It doesn't matter what it is. There's always going to be something in your speech that people will respond to and dislike. And the more that you are not white and male, the more often that will happen. So women in particular in broadcast settings get a ton of voice hate mail, much more than men in similar positions and African Americans Mm -hmm. likewise. So it really, what's really interesting is we have this set belief about here's how someone should talk, but that belief is actually fairly fluid in the sense that even if someone talks the way we think we want them to talk, then something else in their speech is going to irritate us. So, you know, for every like that annoys somebody and someone's speech, then they'll say, I hate how you use like, well, they use so a lot, right? And then for every so at the beginning of a sentence that they use that that someone else hates, that person uses well too much or uses okay all the time or uses right in the middle of their sentences. So there's always going to be something that someone doesn't like. And if we try to spend most of our time worrying about what people like and dislike in our speech, then we're not going to be authentic and real and have connections. And that's the point of speech in the end. And if we can move away from the idea that there is a right way to talk and a good way to talk, and then there's a bad way to talk, instead, we look at it as there are ways that we have in common that help bond us as speakers and other ways that help point to the fact that we are not the same person and that's okay, then I think we can be a more connecting empathetic audience and speaker at the same time. It's just getting our head wrapped around that I can dislike the way that someone talks, but that doesn't mean that the way they talk is bad. And that's a crucial distinction. That is a wonderful message to take us to break with. But when we get back, I want to talk to you about teenagers and slang and all these crazy words that kids are always coming up, coming up with. But we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Valerie Friedland. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet 
to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Okay, we're back with Valerie Friedland. Before the break, we were just talking about how women are often uh, criticized uh, excessively for the way that they speak, their use of language uh, when they're speaking publicly. Uh, That's certainly true. I want to talk about another group of people who are often criticized for their language, which is young people. Teenagers (laughs) or, or even kids are constantly being told that they're speaking wrong. In my intro, I talked about this case where a, a UK school is trying to ban ban the use of slang entirely, uh, which obviously is seems completely excessive. Why is slang such a sore spot for adults? And what purpose does it serve for young people? Well, first of all, anybody trying to ban slang, good luck with that one. There's just no for way. <laughs> you know, young people <laughs> are the innovators in language, and, and pretty much we have them to thank for all the features of language we use today. Without young people, we would have no linguistic revela- revolutions. We would have no innovations. We mm. would have no new words to describe the experiences that we have in our world. So it's funny that we want to eradicate what they add to our language instead of embrace it. But I think a lot of it is because what we notice that young people do is invent novel slang that's maybe a little counterculture or rebellious or even taboo in some ways. Uh, And a lot of what they say is never going to hit mainstream and become the language of our future. But the more underlying things that they introduce, the new ways of using language innovatively, like saying adulting sucks from adult. They follow the pattern that many of us have trod before. So for example, parent, Uh, was a noun long before it was a verb. So if I say parenting sucks, nobody blinks an eye. And most of us that are parents would would approve of that message. (laughs) But when I say adulting sucks, I roll my eyes because teenagers are using language in a bad way. But we didn't really see Mm -hmm. the word parenting come into widespread use until the 20th century. It was always a noun before that. Uh, Shakespeare was renowned for using nouns as verbs and verbs as noun. So this is just part of the natural evolution of language, but it's all in the mouths of the young, the young who are more creative and innovative and more free to do creative things with language that these types of forms come forth. And because they're different than what we say, And because we think we say everything correctly, we judge young people for doing it. A lot of times because they are doing it a little bit to piss us off. I mean, admit it when you were a teenager, you wanted to, (laughs) you wanted to piss your parents off. And the first thing you want to do is speak differently than your parents. And that drives a lot of this creativity and innovation. But the thing we forget is that young people also have more um, neural plasticity than us old folks, which is really unfortunate for us, but they can make much quicker nerve fiber connections. They have more, more neuro connectivity. And they also are able to analyze really underlying distributions, really subtle 
variations in things better than adults can. So that primes them for linguistic innovation because they notice these low-lying tendencies at a rate much higher than old people do. So then the problem is they start to use it and it's different than what we say. (laughs) And then we hate it. So that's really the cycle of language change. This is just there. They have a special ability as young people that we have lost and we're angry about it. It's (laughs) like when you see, um, you know, when you're uh, look, I, I cannot ski. I'm so bad at it. And now I'm, I also would never do it because I am too worried about my joints at this point in my life. I'm not going to take that risk with my body. And when I see a five-year-old on skis or a four-year-old on skis and you see them and you're like, man, when they fall down, they don't even feel it. They bounce you know, and I resent them for that <laughs> because well, they have yes. this ability of youth that I have lost. Maybe that is why we get mad at them. We're like, you're coming up with new words. I can't do that anymore. Exactly. Well, also remember that when you're five, you're only two feet from the ground. <laughs> that helps yep. when you fall. Yeah. But yes, it's it's partially that. It's partially that we are a little resentful of their creativity. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, we see young people as not quite fully formed. And a lot of times they use language in ways that are slightly rebellious. I mean, the attraction to new forms of young people is usually because it's different than what parents do. And it's a little bit rebellious and nonconformist. And then as adults, we are constantly telling our kids to slow down when they're screaming down the mountain. Right. And we're doing the same thing with language. So even though we might teach them to Uh, ski, we don't teach them to go hundred miles per hour skiing. Same thing with language. We, we give them the fundamental structure of language. That's our role as parents. And when they're born and we're, we're giving them input, they're getting our system as the fundamental system, but then they go to school and they do something called vernacular reorganization, which is just the fancy linguistic term for they look at their peer group and go, wow, they're so much cooler than mom. I'm going to be like them. <laughs> and then they adopt that because that's really who they want to model themselves after. But I think parents can rest assured that all of that finds its place. And we we go through these periods in adolescence where we're really attracted to these rebellious, nonconformist Uh, maybe even non-standard, maybe even offensive things at times. But what we find is something called age grading. As kids get into the professional work world, as they become adults and become parents, they naturally start to adjust their speech towards those old, boring, traditional norms that older speakers Mm. adopt. So whatever was coming up as a new feature in their speech that's not stigmatized will become the new norm, but stigmatized or rebellious features tend to get dampened in their rate and they don't get used as much. So like use is a good example. A lot of people hate like, they think their kids use it too much. They want to kill, you know, kill it in their kid's speech. But as kids move from being a 17-year-old, you know, like user in every sentence to a 25-year-old professional, they will naturally start to use like less often, even though they won't eradicate it completely from their speech, but they'll use it at a, at a level that's not highly stigmatized anymore. It's just a natural yeah. transition that happens. That's so cool. One of the things I think is coolest about the way teenagers or young people use language is there's like a natural creativity that is so exuberant that like every school in America has its own slang that no one else has ever heard. I had a friend uh, who was teaching school at a, you know, at a high school in Brooklyn for just a couple of years. He's a substitute teacher. And he was telling me the kids slang. This is about 10 years ago. He said that kids were using the phrase. Uh, it's quiet for that now to mean uh, that something is boring or that it's like old hat. You know, it's uh, it's it's passe 
or that you shouldn't do something because it's the wrong time. You know, like you shouldn't, uh, you know, if you're if you're like singing a song during study hall or whatever, it's quiet for that now. We're not doing that right now, you know. And I love that phrase. I just love saying it. I still say it to my girlfriend around the house. Nah, it's quiet for that now. You know, she's she's like, you want to watch that show? Nah, it's quiet for that now. I don't like it anymore, you know. But it's like this particular piece of slang. I mean, maybe people, know, maybe other people in the comments have heard it. Maybe it was all over New York City in 2012 or whatever. <laughs> um, but but I never heard it except from my friends who reported it, hearing it, you know, in the wild. Um, and I'm sure that kids at that school are no longer saying that they're, that they're onto something else new. Uh, and that is, I think the coolest thing It's, I mean, that's the true folk process. That's people coming up with their own exuberant uses of language that means something to them. And then it sort of dissipates over time. I think that's an amazing thing about language. It's a, it is, it's a remarkable when you watch young people and language and how they engage with it, create it, innovate it, and then leave it behind or embrace it for the future. So a lot of the things you're talking about are slang terms or words themselves. So my daughter's always using the ones like, they're such a pick me. And I'm like, what? A pick me? What do you mean a pick me? <laughs> but what she meant was they're eight. You remember in school when you would be the one wanting to be on the volleyball team and you'd like, pick me, pick me. Well, now they yeah. use that word to mean they're, they're always trying to get out in front and be the person chosen. So they're always somebody who needs to be yes. the center of attention. So my daughter's like, oh my God, what a pick me. So they've used this creative knowledge of, yep. you know, this idea of what you do for sports or in gym class to become a descriptor of a person's specific style of interacting or engaging. Or she'll say, yeah, I'm so aggressed, which is, you know, I'm angry. It's just they're really creative and wonderful with language. But those are vocabulary words which are actually pretty ephemeral in language. So they can pick them up and use them. And then when they're not cool anymore or too many people do it, or especially if adults start to pick it up, then it's bye bye. Right. I'm not interested. But what we don't understand is that young people are actually the heart of language evolution more generally, so that what they're doing with language at a much more subtle structural level, the changes that they're making in very small tweaks and refinements are actually going to be the future of our language in bigger ways. So let me give you an example that maybe you hadn't noticed. When you're using words like everybody, somebody, um, nobody, do you even say buddy mm. anymore? Or do you say everyone, someone, no one? Everyone. Uh, I, I actually couldn't tell you. I would think I would think I use. Let's see. Everyone was there. Everybody was there. I'm not sure which I'd use more often, to be honest. I'm sorry to not have a good answer. Well, you probably know it's actually not surprising because people are not very reflective on that, right? You don't think about it. Am yeah. I saying everybody or no one? And that's how language change happens, where one form starts to be used more often by people that are somehow cooler or, or hipper or better than you in some way socially, mm. often in adolescence. And what seems to be happening is buddy is being replaced by one, especially among younger speakers. You see very few younger speakers say everybody, somebody, nobody. In fact, almost all of them say everyone, someone, no one. Now that's a much wow. more, that's a much more underlying structural change. It's not a, a slang word. It's not a vocabulary word. But when we look now at older speakers, we find that starting to creep into older speakers speech. So when we do a study and we look at different age groups, what we find is that everybody, the buddy in those words is losing ground to one, which will be in 10 years 
15 years, probably the only form that we use anymore. And everybody and oh. nobody will seem very archaic and old. So these are actually the more substantive types of change that young people bring into our language. Another good example is using weight as a discourse marker. So I might, if you're, you know, somewhere and I need to go get something, I might say, could you wait five minutes? Meaning physically stand for some time to wait for me. But what we find yeah. now is people are saying, wait, I don't think so. Where they're actually using weight as a discourse marker, which doesn't really yeah. mean wait any particular amount of time. When I say wait, I don't think so. I'm not telling you to physically stop and wait for me. What I'm saying is a metaphorical pausing. I'm taking a metaphorical pause here. What we find is that's also a new change coming in. Young people say wait a lot more than young older speakers who don't say wait they say wait a minute and yeah. so it went from no discourse marker where wait was only used as a main verb that actually meant pausing to wait a minute used by older speakers to mean metaphorical pausing to now younger speakers that only say wait not wait a minute and what we find is when we look 50 years ago when we start to study that change not only was it young speakers it was lower class young speakers and lower class and young mm. are the magic sauce to language change and that seems to then suggest that that will be what we say going forward that wait a minute is gone the way of the dodo and wait will be the new discourse marker so these are really cool things that we don't even realize we're doing and then they work their way into our language because young people started them yeah that is so fascinating. Now, I was about to ask you about race and language because that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of interactions there in American life. You just brought up class, though. Class and race often intersect in American life. So um, how do those elements come into it? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's uh, a history of race in America is very fraught. A lot of our, I think, greatest language innovations come from uh, marginalized groups throughout American history. How 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 do those things work together? Well, absolutely. Just like lower class speech features being something that is often a triggering uh, impetus for impetus for change, so is ethnicity. Um, and not mm -hmm. only that, but uh, it could also be things like not necessarily ethnicity, but other subcultures that are marginalized, like drag culture. Drag culture has actually right. brought a lot of words into our language. So, for example, Vogue is a word that came from drag culture. And I think the word of the year this year was a suffix called ussy, which was the ussification. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, whose word of the year was it? Was that Merriam-Webster? Uh, that chose was that the one? American Dialect Society's word of the year, because that was also from dra drag culture, where it was the ussification of, of all things could be ussified. Dude, um, uh, the so American <laughs> Dialect, the American Dialect Society is cool, man. You, uh, you're you with it. Cool. Uh, cool. I assume you're a member. I am or, a member. <laughs> I am a voting member. Yes, I am. <laughs> you voted for Ussy. I, I did not actually. There was another word I really wanted. I have to say, uh, Ussy was a runner up, but I can't remember what my, see, it's gone. I don't even remember it anymore because it didn't win. Oh, wow. Because it, <laughs> it's not the word of the year. Uh, well, no, Ussy is like, look, all you got to do is look at the TikTok comments and you'll see that that Ussy is indeed the word or the suffix of the year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, tell tell me more about about that phenomenon. Well, you know, what happens is things happen in adolescence that are cool and interesting that have nothing to do with the types of things that we value as adults, especially standard speaking adults who disdain anything associated with marginalized groups or groups that we disfavor in society. But when you're a young person and you're in school or you're in a community, what you really want to do is stand out in some way. We also want to 
sort of project these different kinds of identities. And a lot of times that's tied into these groups that are marginalized in society, such as African-American culture or uh, drag culture or whatever culture that you're identifying with, but particularly in inner city schools, if you want to, you know, not get beaten up for your lunch money every day, one of the ways to do that is project speech features that signal toughness, nonconformity, physical strength. Mm -hmm. And one way that particularly young white men do this is to be uh, adopting the features from groups in school that they identify as physically tough, as rebellious, as nonconformist, as dangerous in some way. And even though these yep. are stereotypes about those cultures that are not true to the cultures themselves, they, they have much more depth than that. The features that those groups use, so African-American features in particular, are often then appropriated by these young men to personify those identities, like being tough, being cool, and being macho, to help them fit in in the world. And then these features then grow up with them. So they become part of the language of the larger mainstream culture, which is how we get a lot of features, like even the word jazz, which was actually an African-American word, um, get into mainstream culture. And I think one way we see it now is woke. The word woke was actually an African-American English word that now has made yeah. it into mainstream culture for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Well, then depending on how it's used, I mean, the the problem is that even though these are the folks who are you know being incredibly I- I- innovative with language, right? As you say, the intersection of youth and class and marginalization that, that sort of caused the innovation and also caused it to be adopted by the more, you know, by the dominant, you know, normative folks, uh, it's the marginalized groups who get criticized for their use of language or attacked for the use of language. I mean, just, you know, having gone through, you know, in, in the nineties growing up and, you know, the, the war over Ebonics as a phrase where that became a punchline, right. As, uh, you know, a, a pretty, a, a pretty well-meaning linguistic, uh, project was turned into a joke that was, you know, on the, everybody in, in white culture made fun of for a couple of years at the same time that they were then appropriating those same words and those same uh, speech patterns is like a really pernicious cycle, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, the funny thing is that we really hate language change. We think it's somehow bad that it points to some sort of decay in society, but it's really because language change typically begins in the groups that we have stereotypes or prejudice against. And because Mm -hmm. of that association, we dislike it and we try to push it away. But it is, it's very much the fact that we don't police our language when we are members of marginalized communities, according to the norms of the dominant society, that we allow in-group markers to develop, that we allow different linguistic tendencies that are underlying all language to just affect change in our varieties, that those things come out of those groups rather than the groups that maintain these standards and forcibly don't let their language adapt. And then it becomes staid and boring and it doesn't have much life. I mean, look at Latin, right? We didn't, we, we don't allow Latin yeah. to change and no one's using that to hang out and go to the bars and, and form solidarity and connection. But when we allow language to emerge and become naturally communicative, naturally connection making, naturally part of our identity process, then it becomes something that other people look at and and basically want to take over because we want what that represents. We want the social connectedness that we feel those features amplify. Um, so when I hear someone using really low 
um, sort of informal, low-class speech, it might seem bad to me as a speaker of standard English, but it also means like they're informal, they're intimate, they're relaxed, they're familiar, they're friendly, right? It has these other yeah. associations. And when I'm an adolescent, that's really attractive to me. I want that. I want yeah. to have that. And also, even when I'm a standard speaker, when I go home and talk to my kids or I go home and I talk to my spouse, I don't want to come home talking like the office. I want to use the speech that's connection, the speech that's familiarity, the, the speech that's intimacy. And you can't get that without some emphatic senses, some subjective senses, some natural laid back kinds of features. And those are what we draw from in marginalized group speech, because that is what that has come to represent the connection, the community, the social identity of friendliness, of companionship, of solidarity. So it's something that even the, even the uh, most priggish people who want to criticize marginalized group. And by the way, when you say we, we don't like that speech, I like to think that I do like it. I like to think I have a, I'm more broad-minded about it. Um, but even if somebody is that priggish about it and they're like, oh, how dare they talk that way? They're still hearing that language going, oh, I wish I had that level of community. I wish I could partake in that a little bit. And they end up adopting those words because it like communicates a certain level of of informality and and uh, and ease with other people that we all kind of crave in our lives to to have, uh, as you can, oh, you hear another community talking with that kind of ease. You're like, I want to use those words too, because they communicate comfort and and community in a way that I, that I crave, uh, and that I don't get from my, from my formal, rigid office, white, you know, affluent talk. Right. Right. And I think there's also, especially with African-American speech, there's an edginess and a counterculture-ness that we tend to, um, find associated with that, those kinds of speech forms. And a lot of that has to do with the very fact that we marginalize those communities, right? When we, yeah. when we push a community to the extremes, to the edges, um, then we also create a situation where we almost envy their status as outsiders and as rule breakers and as sort of being um, non-traditionalists. And even though they didn't yeah. ask for that role, and often they have traditions of their own, from the perspective of the dominant group, that's the kinds of qualities that get put on their features of speech, put on their, their styles of dress, put on cultural yep. things that they have associated with them. music. And then, right. Yep. And so then that becomes enviable because it seems cool and edgy and chill and laid back and, and whatever qualities, you know, edgy and, and even gangster, right? I think a lot of young speakers, young male speakers are attracted to that kind of dangerous, rebellious sort of sense that it has. And that's really something we put on it because we've pushed it to the outside. But then by doing that, we want to bring it back in and make it part of our speech so that we can get those qualities that now those features have when they're used by members of that community. So it's this really interesting cycle of pushing out, pulling yeah. in, pushing out, pulling in. But then, of course, what happens is young speakers adopt it and then older speakers who don't see the value in it disdain their speech as well until those become more dominant and are used in wider culture. So when words like jazz or woke start to get picked up and move more mainstream, we almost forget where they came from, which then is a disservice, of course, to the people that started them. So it's a weird, vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're describing really the, the, the structure of how racism and marginalization eventually leads to appropriation and, to, you know, in some cases, theft, in some cases, productive borrowing. Uh, but 
you know, it's it's uh, you're just describing the, the entire uh, problem of American culture and race and it just through linguistics. It's that, I mean, and it really goes to prove the point that you learn so much about people and the structure of a society through language, which sort of it gets to my point that I, I made in the in the intro to this episode that, you know, we waste so much time criticizing the speech of others, whether that's marginalized groups or each other or ourselves, when we could be learning from that speech. We could be understanding, oh, wait, this says something about the speaker, about the structure of our society that we use language in this in this way, does it not? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if we think back to the history of English, one great example of us doing this, and now it's so assimilated into our language that we don't even remember that we did it, is how many, many of the words that we use in modern English and even our pronouns, for example, come from the Vikings, who were definitely not looked mm. upon favorably when they were pillaging <laughs> in, in the 8th and ninth centuries. But a lot of the words that we have, so for example, the pronoun they and them. Those are Norse. Those are Norse words. Words like window and sister and skirt. Those are Norse words. And the interesting things about the words that we borrowed from Norse, from the Vikings, are their everyday words. They're words about life. Because when we interacted with the Vikings when it wasn't vicious, obviously, when it was, you know, in everyday interactions, it was about the the day-to-day work of life. It was about seeing each other in the farms and learning from each other in those casual interactions. But when we interacted with the French, it was up, right? It was because they were the rulers. It was us as the servants and them as the rulers. So the types of words that we have from French tend to be the highfalutin words, words for medicine, words for law, like the word judge, the word prison, the word government. Those are all from French because that's the kind of interaction we have with them. So when we look at even the types of words that come in from these different subcultures, we learn a lot about our relationship with those speakers. Yeah. And man, it's just, as soon as you start looking for this stuff, you see it everywhere. everywhere. You know, I, I mean, even even what I do, stand up comedy, right? It has its own language. It has its own way of speaking. One of my favorite things to do is talk to other stand up comics in a green room, and we have our own. It's it's not quite a dialect or even a you know sort of a, a you know carny language or anything like that. It's just <laughs> like there's a few there's a few unusual words. There's a few a few unusual ways of speaking. You know, there's a there's an extreme casualness that like connotes. A, uh, a, you know, that we're participants in a certain, uh, in a certain world. And some of those words, if, but not all have made their way into the, into the broader language. Uh, George Carlin famously did a bit about how you kill, you crush, right? If you did well and you die, if you, if you bomb, you bomb, right? There's all these words about violence. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, this is happening in a million subcultures around the world at every single moment. And it's such a beautiful thing about language. And, and all we can really do is, is hope to describe it and, and use it to understand each other rather than make rules around it, I think. I don't know. Absolutely. And I think once you start unraveling that thread, it's so cool where it leads because you you have these ideas about language that are formed from this weird thing you do in school, right? You go to grammar class and that's really your only knowledge of language. If you think about what have I learned about language in my lifetime, it is simply I have learned that there are nouns and there are verbs and how I'm supposed to string them in a sentence and that I'm not supposed to end my sentences with prepositions or split my infinitives because I learned this thing in grammar class from the time I was five to the time I'm, you know, 25 or whenever you finish graduate school or whatever you're doing. But 
we never learn about language as a system. We never learn about language as a science. We never learn about language as a history. But all of those mm. things are what brought language to where it is today. They're, they're so much embedded in the culture of language and the science of language that we could really learn from. And that's what I was trying to do with my book. I'm trying to bring that history and that background and that science out so that people can understand why we say the things we do. Where does like come from? Well, like's 300 years old. So it's pretty cool that we still use it today. And it's not new. It's not American. It's actually British. So, you know, these really cool little threads that once you untangle them, it opens this whole new way of looking at language. It's, it's very, very cool. Amazing. Valerie, it's been so incredible talking to you. Uh, tell us once again the name of the book and where people can get it. Sure. The name of the book is Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And you can buy it wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon or your local bookstore. Uh, that's my preference. If you want to go give them some um, some money and some book sales, that would be great. <laughs> but anywhere books are sold, you can find it. And of course, if you want to buy it through our special bookshop, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. Factuallypod.com slash books. You'll be supporting not just this show, but also your local bookstore as well as if you buy it from there. Valerie, we didn't even get to talk about Dude. I'm afraid that people will have to buy the book oh in order to dude, learn amazing. about it. Uh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> well, <laughs> dude, dude, I can't believe it. Thank you so much for being here, Valerie. I uh, hope you'll come back again and talk to us about this again sometime. I would love to. And I think I can only end it up by saying later, dude. <laughs> <laughs> later, dude. <laughs> Well, thank you once again to Valerie for coming on the show. Once again, the URL to pick up her book is factuallypod.com slash books. And if you want to support this show, you can join our community at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. I want to thank everybody who supports this show at the $15 a month level in particular. Our recent $15 a month subscribers include The Spicy, Nick Frazier, Transient Astronomer, Ken Rower, Rebecca Bahia, and Andy Smith. Thank you so much. Um, novel uses of language in that list of usernames as well. I want to thank our producers, Sam Rodman and Tony Wilson, everybody at HeadGum for helping make this show possible. You can find me online at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media or adamconover.net. You can also get my tour dates on that very website. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Catch us back next week on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.